From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. By the end of today's show, you will learn how to carry and administer the overdose reversal drug Narcan. We take a training with Coloradans who want to feel less hopeless in the face of the opioid crisis. People are so quick to take out their phones and record something instead of doing something. I'm seeing a lot more news outlets getting on this, um, which has actually made me pay attention um, because I don't use drugs. So this isn't something that, you know, was really on my radar, but I'm really learning a lot. Then a business accelerator that levels the playing field. Business ownership is one of the key pillars to building wealth and intergenerational wealth. And Latinos hold about one-tenth the wealth of those of white Americans. My name is Raymond Lorenz, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. The car was an old-timer, but it was in outstanding condition. And we wanted to pass it on to somebody that would appreciate it. And there were tears of joy when we heard how much they sold the car for. It was very simple. I just set it up online, and I watched them load it up onto the flatbed truck and and drive it away. Learn how to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Given the numbers in Colorado, it's not a stretch to say that a drug overdose has or will occur in your circles, which is why the other day a guest pleaded with people to keep Narcan on them, the reversal drug. If you walk on Earth or in Denver, we need you carrying it today. That is Lisa Rayville of the Harm Reduction Action Center. And as I listened to her interview with my colleague Andrea Dukakis, I wondered, where would I get Narcan? What sort of training would I need? How would I administer it? So I reached out and Rayville agreed to train me up, along with two other Coloradans who told me they were also curious. My name is Jolie Weatherspoon. I live in Westminster. My name is Sheree Garcia Cooper, and I live in Centennial, Colorado. I asked why they were interested. I mean, partly just because I like learning things, uh, but also I work in Lodo, so I've seen a lot of drug activity near overdoses. I've also had people close to me in my life that have overdosed, and being able to do something about that would be amazing. I've started hearing a lot more about it and how you know, it's been impacting people and the overdoses and whatnot. So I would like to carry it. I work in a field where I'm often in abandoned job sites. So there's oftentimes squatters there or evidence of squatters. Um, I also go to a lot of concerts. I mean, more so pre-pandemic, but there's a lot of stuff floating around at concerts too. And I feel like if I can be the person to help somebody, great. I think we all should kind of take this responsibility. You know, our health reporter was out at Red Rocks with fentanyl test strips. And drugs people don't know contain fentanyl, contain fentanyl. So I think that's what you're getting at, Cherie. Correct. And let's learn more about our trainer. By the time she's done, you too will have the skills to intervene if you see someone overdosing. My name is Lisa Rayville. I'm the executive director of the Harm Reduction Action Center, Colorado's largest public health agency that works specifically with people who inject drugs and people who smoke drugs such as crack, meth, and fentanyl. And you are going to, is it fair to say, teach us to administer Narcan? Is it something that requires a class? 
It requires just a few minutes of training. What we do is talk about how to prevent an overdose first and foremost, and then how to recognize and respond. We are in the worst overdose crisis we've ever been in. It's a fentanyl overdose crisis, and it's a polydrug overdose crisis. Polydrug meaning... Polydrug meaning more than one drug is on board for the overdose. Oh. Oftentimes drugs are synergistic, meaning it's not one plus one equals two, it's one plus one equals four. What is Narcan? It keeps people alive in the event of an opioid overdose. Again, fentanyl is an opioid, much like methadone, oxys, heroin. It is possible to keep people alive in the event of an opioid overdose. Paramedics and emergency departments have been using Narcan for over 40 years, which is really great if overdoses happen around paramedics or emergency department. It needs to be in the hands of people who use drugs first and foremost, as they're the true first responders, and then third parties. Anybody in the state of Colorado can carry naloxone and has been able to since 2013. So it wasn't always legal for everyday folk to carry Narcan? Correct. Correct. Um, it had to be prescribed to you before 2013 just to opioid users. But in 2013, we did pass a law at the Colorado State Legislature to limit civil and criminal liability so anybody in the state of Colorado can carry it. And now they've passed that law in all 50 states. Anybody in the United States can carry naloxone. Would that be something that I would have been able to get through TSA? when I took my trip to New York, because I did see something in New York that could have possibly, that was the other reason I reached out to you. You recently took a trip, and yes. your question is, could you travel with this in clear security? Absolutely. This is a prescription medicine. So when you leave here, we will have your name on it, so you can carry it anywhere that you want to, and you oh. should have it on you. Oh, you'll give, you'll give us some today. Oh, heck yeah, Ryan Warner. I see. Right now, it is a prescription drug, so you can get it out of pharmacies. Most major insurances cover it. You just have to pay your copay or out of harm reduction organizations. Mostly, uh, you know, I have to prioritize my naloxone and Narcan for people who use drugs, but when Ryan Warner calls, Ryan Warner calls. Oh, that's a nice thing to say. If I were to get a prescription for it to carry, would that be a red flag to my insurance company? that I might be a user? It shouldn't. We've been able to kind of normalize it now that anybody in the United States should be carrying it. Do you get a prescription from your doctor? Do you just walk up to the pharmacy and say, I need some Narcan? In 2015, we passed standing orders. So you don't need a prescription from your physician. You can walk into these 470 pharmacies today in the state of Colorado and get access. Much like I'm able to push it out to you today, I don't need a physician on site. I'm working under a physician standing orders. I would like to mention that law passed in 2015. All 100 state legislators voted in support of it, and they never agree on anything. And they said, if you want <laughs> Narcan today, you should have Narcan today. You should have Narcan today. Wow. And though the prescription might be in my name, the understanding is that I might use it to administer on a complete stranger. Correct. It's very difficult to Narcan or Naloxone yourself. Limiting civil and criminal liability means that they know they're prescribing to you that you're going to use on somebody else, which is not usually how prescription medications work. I suppose this liability question is if I intervene and I am not able to reverse the overdose, I'm held harmless Correct. No one's ever been sued for trying to do the right thing with access to naloxone. The Good Samaritan laws would protect you on that. Also, you can't hurt anybody with naloxone or Narcan. We'll talk about that too. It's foolproof. Cherie, huh. when you go to a job site, for instance, and you said these are sometimes like abandoned homes, Correct. Do, you, do you have concerns about, say, your safety or what might happen if you reversed an overdose? I'm just trying to think of what it means to be out on a job site and if you travel alone. Uh, I do often travel alone. And yeah, that came up too, is what if um, I accidentally hurt somebody? 
Um, you know, you do a lot of the what if games, but I think ultimately um, it just seems like the right thing to do. I think more and more people are carrying it. And I think it would be scarier if I were to walk into an abandoned job site, someone was there overdosing and I couldn't do anything to help them. I think being in a powerless situation is very scary to me, but being able to take control of that, I'm kind of a control freak. So having that control to help somebody, I think I could live with myself a heck of a lot better than if I just left them there to die. That's honestly, I I told you, Ryan, when we started, I have a friend who's a part-time ENT. We were at work one day, right on 18th and Blake, and we saw this person start to have a seizure and they fell off of the bench into the gutter and got their head stuck between a tire and the curb. And there were all kinds of people around and everybody just started freaking out. Nobody moved, but my friend leaped into action, ran over, grabbed this person and started administering aid. And I felt so helpless in that moment because I didn't know what to do. People were yelling, you know, it's that whole bystander thing. People were yelling, call 911, but nobody did it. So then I saw him take action and I stopped and grabbed my phone. So I think having the training, if something like that happens again, where I can actually know what to do would make me, A, be a better citizen and be able to help somebody, but not have that feeling of helplessness personally, which as you said, is terrible. Yes, the empowerment aspect of this. Thanks for saying that. Sheree, go ahead. And I also think kind of piggybacking on what you said, people are so quick to take out their phones and record something instead of doing something. And I think it's very important that more people learn about this. And I think it's fantastic. Um, I'm seeing a lot more news outlets getting on this, um, which has actually made me pay attention um, because I don't use drugs. So this isn't something that, you know, was really on my radar, but I'm really learning a lot. You've been doing a lot of nodding, Lisa Rayville, as you've listened to Cherie and Jolie. Absolutely. I mean, you need to be acting. I mean, an opioid overdose is lack of oxygen, so even three to five minutes uh, could be problematic with somebody without oxygen. And when people are unhoused, they use outside, in alleys, in parks, and in business bathrooms, which is why we try to push forward with overdose prevention sites as well. The reason we may come into contact with folks is that these are semi-public settings, I guess. Absolutely. It used to be cops coming up on people overdosing. Now it's 17-year-old baristas who are being re-triggered every day because they don't want to clean the bathroom before they go home because they've come up on somebody overdosing. So it's a larger community trauma issue. When we lose 450 people in Denver last year to a drug-related death, 370 the year before, 225 the year before that, somebody has to find them. Is that a loved one or a random stranger? Oh. Tell us about the wall just outside before we do this training. Sure, that's our overdose memorial wall. 95% of these folks we lost in our community due to overdose. People don't have to die of an opioid overdose. It is preventable with access to naloxone or Narcan. One of the main reasons that people overdose is using a loan. So we put the people up there to memorialize them. We loved them too. Once they're on the wall, it's over. When people are on that wall, all hope is lost. Hope, I suppose, is key here. What would you say to someone who says, okay, I'll carry Narcan, Naloxone, but am I just reviving someone so that they could use again? Is that an emotion that you've encountered, a feeling? Some people say that. Dead drug users do not have the opportunity for life. The only thing Narcan enables is breathing. And if it was your kid, you'd want us fighting. 
I would rather resuscitate somebody for them to go out and use again than watch them die. All right, our Narcan training begins in earnest after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. First-generation kids can struggle to fit in. That was true for Alan Benavides when his mother sent him to the first day of school in Aguayavera. And again, years later, when he went to Oregon to manage a minor league baseball team. I never felt more brown in my life. How Alan Benavides hit a home run. The new episode of CPR's podcast, Quien Are We? Exploring what it means to be Latino, Hispanic, Chicana, everywhere you find podcasts. Opioids, especially fentanyl, are killers. But it's possible to reverse an overdose with a nasal spray called Narcan. Two Coloradans let us take a training with them, Cherie Garcia-Cooper of Centennial and Jolie Witherspoon of Westminster. Our trainer is Lisa Rayville, who leads the Harm Reduction Action Center in Denver. We sat around a table on which Rayville had placed a resuscitation doll. So let's begin the training, which can also prepare you if you want to carry the medication. There's four main reasons why people overdose. The first is the quality of the drug. The supply is unpredictable. Second main reason is any period of abstinence coming out of jail, prison, treatment, living a life of recovery. Folks coming out of incarceration are 129 times more likely to overdose post-incarceration in those first two weeks than the general population. Why is that? Because of period of abstinence. Because? And their tolerance is low. Oh, okay. So it hits their body Mm -hmm. very hard. Well, and there's been this period of abstinence and people haven't been using. And keep going. Okay. Third main reason is mixing. So opioid users, and when we talk about opioids, we're talking about methadone, fentanyl, heroin, oxys. People are using opioids. They're no longer getting high anymore. They're going from minus physical withdrawal pain, the flu times 1,000, to normal or well, right? So they might put a benzodiazepine on board, which is an anti-anxiety medication, or alcohol. Those drugs are synergistic, meaning it's not 1 plus 1 equals 2. It's 1 plus 1 equals 4. And then the fourth main reason is simply using alone by the very fact that no one's there to witness, recognize, or respond. So there's a difference between being really high and overdose. So really high is muscles become relaxed, speech is slow and slurred, sleepy looking and nodding, but will respond to a sternal rub. Everybody put your hand together in a fist, take your knuckles and go right here on your breastbone, do it kind of hard. It kind of hurts, right? If somebody pops up, they're not overdosing. Versus if they feel that. If they feel that, that and they rub. start talking to you or they kind of pop up, that's not an overdose. Okay. Versus an overdose is a deep snoring or gurgling. It's called the death rattle. They say if you've ever heard it, you'll never forget it. Very infrequent or no breathing, a pale or clammy skin, a heavy nod not responsive to that stimulation, a blue or gray skin tinge of the lips or fingertips because an opioid overdose is lack of oxygen, and a slow or no heartbeat. That's how you tell that it's That's an overdose. That's how you know it's an overdose. Sheree, you were nodding your head at the death rattle. Yes, I was actually with my mother-in-law when she passed away. She was in hospice and I took care of her and I was holding her hand when she passed and it's, you're right, you do not forget that sound. They call, I think they called it like fish out of water Mm -hmm. sound, but it's a very shallow gurgling that 
any listeners who are hearing this will instantly like, yes, I know what that. Mm-hmm. You're right. You don't forget it. And that sternal rub is a good, quick test mm-hmm. if you're in in the field. Correct. And, and witness something. So if somebody's laying like in a weird position and you're not sure, you want to like tap their foot right before you get into that sternal rub. If you tap their foot and they're like, get out of here, ma'am. You're like, oh, so sorry. Let me move on with my day. Take mm. care. Versus the tapping foot isn't working. Now you need to get down. You need to get that sternal rub. And should we be mindful of anyone listening who might have experienced an overdose or witnessed one? Absolutely. This can bring up a lot of feelings, much like people might have feelings around the death rattle as well. Yeah. It's been really scary. It's very scary to recognize and respond to an overdose, and it's very scary if you've lost somebody to overdose. So you have what looks like a recessa Andy here. Mm -hmm. Call him Buddy. Buddy, the torso and face... Mannequin. Yep. Okay. Yep. Here we go. And so here we go. What form, by the way, is the naloxone you're going to give us today? I'm going to give you the intranasal Narcan. It's going to go up the nostril and spray. This okay. whole training is really for you to put it up one nostril and spray. One nostril, not both. No, no. Okay. All right. So you're going to come up on somebody and go, sir, buddy, you doing okay, buddy? And you know at this point, you need to go ahead. Well, we You're do doing the sternal rub. I'm doing the sternal rub right uh, now. On, what is on his name again? Buddy. Buddy. And Buddy, Buddy is not responding. That's right. You doing okay? What's nice about Narcan is if there's no opioids in their system, it won't do anything to them. You cannot mess this up. So if you suspect it's an opioid overdose, go for it, babe. So Buddy, Buddy, you all right? Now, what you're going to do is you're going to come up on somebody. You're going to go underneath their neck, close their nose, and do two big breaths right off the top. One... Two. Now you're going to take this. You're going to have a peel on the back of this. And what is this? This is their Narcan. Up one nostril and spray. If there's a couple people, you say, you, call 911. That way we know you're calling 911 and you know you're calling 911. Right? Now we're going to rescue breathe once every seven seconds for three minutes. you got to give it time to work. So... One, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, four, one thousand, five, one thousand, six, one thousand, seven, one thousand. Breathe. Breathe into their mouth. And close the nose, right? You don't need to do CPR. The heart is fine. It's lack of oxygen. So you're doing that once every seven seconds for three minutes. Give it time to work. Ideally, somebody can time you, right? Get out that cell phone. Time me. You don't want to do them back to back because that's going to violently knock the opioid off the receptor. This is the kinder, gentler dose. If they're not awake after that three minutes and paramedics haven't arrived, you're going to use the other dose. I'm going to give you two doses in here. Each kit comes with two doses of Narcan. So you've administered one so far, Correct. one spray. Yep, and I'm, in a, I'm breathing once every seven seconds for three minutes. you got to give it time to work. It's a commitment. It takes a while, and time stands still. If they're not awake after that three minutes, use the other dose and continue rescue breathing until they wake up or paramedics arrive. If you do go to that second dose, do you need to go to the other nostril or does it not matter? Not necessarily. Sometimes you won't even remember which nostril you did first of all, but you definitely want to get it in that nostril. Sometimes when we've recognized and responded, you get a little dainty on that first one. Uh Uh-uh. Get it in there. Get that spray going. Cherie, did you know that it would also entail mouth-to-mouth? I didn't know that. I, I did not know that. And I am kind of like, we are in a pandemic. <laughs> so could you use, I used to be a lifeguard and they had like face shields. Is that something you can use, just kind of carry with the Narcan? 
Absolutely. You can purchase them on Amazon. But the breath is really important. We've got to go for it. Doing the Narcan alone without the breathing is not doing it fully. Correct. I, I realize, I hate to say this, I have mixed feelings about whether I'm the right person to do this. Talk to me. You can do it, babe. I believe in you. I know you can do it. Uh, we've recognized and responded to about 25 overdoses in and around our agency in the last 13 years. I've been the rescue breather for the last few. When it's happening, you get in there. You know what to do. Now you know what to do. And they're not going to die on your watch. Also, how would you keep track of three minutes in the real world under duress? Ideally, you have a couple people there and somebody is timing you on a phone. But that could be a magical world. You just have to give it time to work. Do not do these back to back. That violently knocks it off. You've got to give it time to work. And that rescue breathing gives it time to work. Because what it's do is moving the opioid off the receptor and holding for 30 to 90 minutes while you rescue breathe and call 911. Could you tell me about the breaths again? I think I was just thrown off, honestly, about breathing in someone's mouth. Absolutely. It's once every seven seconds for three minutes. So I can demonstrate that again. Part of that is so that you're able to regain your breath to be able to do this for three minutes. You don't want to keep breathing, 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 because then you're not going to be able to keep your breath. So I come up and I go. Holding the nose. Over the mouth. One, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, four, one thousand, five, one thousand, six, one thousand, seven, one thousand. Breathe. One, one thousand, two, one thousand for three minutes. Got it. Yeah. And it's intimate, but you're going to want to get in there. Could someone wake up and be dangerous? No, this is the kinder, gentler dose. What we've seen in the last 25 overdoses we've recognized and responded to, people come up confused. But this is not the dose that EMT and paramedics give. They give way more. Um, So we haven't had anybody come up combative or anything like that. This is the kinder, gentler dose. In other words, there's a heavier dose that might elicit a different reaction, but it's only medical professionals that carry that? Correct, and it's not necessary. Yeah. It puts people in withdrawal, which is painful. So the more, the more Narcan you have on there, the more painful the withdrawal is, which is why we don't ask you doing the two off the top, the two doses off the top. We don't encourage that. This is four milligrams. People wake up just kind of confused. Is there a certain temperature that you want to keep this? Is it something I can keep in my car, in my iPad bag. So when I go in and out of job sites, does it have to be temperature controlled? Ideally, it's between 59 and 77 degrees. That's mildly magical, (laughs) right? We ask that you don't keep it in your car, but Mm. keep it on you, maybe in a purse or a bag you take around. If it's kept in your car for a couple days, we completely understand. It won't do too much to it, but you really want to try to keep it between that 59 and 77 degrees. Most of my folks are unhoused, so it does have that temperature fluctuation. We've never seen any issues with that, but just for you, you'll want to keep it really on you in like a purse or a bag. One more question. Does it expire? Good question. It does expire. Yours is expiring February 2025. Hopefully you never have to use it. We did pass legislation a couple years ago. You can use expired Narcan. Some people just don't feel comfortable. However, it's good for years and years and years and years. Mm. Um, If you want to come back in February 2025 and you haven't used it and you want to trade it out with me, I'll take your expired to give out and then I'll give you new Narcan. If someone is not insured and gets this, how much does it cost them out of pocket? Well, it's tricky because pharmacies can kind of do whatever they want. 
You know what I mean? Um, so if it's coming out of pocket and you don't have insurance, it's probably $125 um, in the pharmacy. Again, pharmacies can set their own prices for that. Uh, Medicaid does cover it, and most major insurances cover it with a copay. You can also get this from the Denver Department of Public Health and Environment. They are sending Narcan and fentanyl testing strips to people's homes for free. My Narcan is basically for Ryan Warner and people who use drugs. Uh-huh. And our guests. Yes. That is, after this segment, you'd appreciate it if people did not call uh, asking you specifically for this drug. This was a training, and you can get it at any major pharmacy or Denver Department of Public Health and Environment. My Narcan and Naloxone need to be for people who use drugs. If you are a listener who uses drugs, come over, babe. Now, are other municipalities doing what Denver is doing? Because we've got listeners uh, all over the state. At this point, I do not believe they are, but they can reach out to their local health department for more information. What does self-care for the person who administers Narcan look like in the days and weeks after an event like this? Sure, it can be really scary to recognize and respond. After somebody has responded and gone away with EMT, you are going to want to check in on that person. That person may be you. I do have to say uh, I was a rescue breather for somebody a couple overdoses ago, and every time I closed my eyes for a week, I saw his face. And I'm in the industry, and I want people overdosing with me because I know how to recognize and respond. So people definitely need to take care of themselves. Oh. You okay? I'm working on the front lines of the worst overdose crisis we've ever been in. Overdose is the leading cause of death of our unhoused neighbors. We're not okay. In any situation, no matter if they are responding to Narcan or not, we're always calling 911, correct? We're always getting the medics involved. If you're a third party, I would encourage that. If you're someone who uses drugs, oftentimes there's some barriers to calling 911, and we train people like that a little differently that I won't be doing on the radio. Okay. Now, if someone is hearing this thinking, I'd like to be trained, uh, what would you tell them? This is the training. You just got trained. There is nothing more to this training. All of your listeners that paid attention to this entire segment are now trained. Lisa, thank you. Jolie, Cherie, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. And I would just like to add, because I feel like many people in Colorado are allergy sufferers. If you've ever used saline nasal spray or Afrin or anything like that, that is exactly how this works. Yeah, it's a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was, I mean, honestly, I don't know if I could say this on the radio. I thought it was going to be like Pulp Fiction in the... <laughs> oh, know, that, the, that sort of the needle, violent like, needle in yes, the chest. Yes. So this is so much more user-friendly. Yep. Cherie Garcia-Cooper of Centennial and Jolie Weatherspoon of Westminster learning to carry and administer Narcan at the Harm Reduction Action Center in Denver. Its executive director is Lisa Rayville. We've laid out everything we learned at CPR.org, where there is also a map of pharmacies that carry the overdose reversal medication. I'm Ryan Warner, and Colorado Matters continues in just a bit on CPR News and KRCC. The most iconic skyscraper in Denver is quite possibly the one folks call the Cash Register Building. With its double curved crown and long association with various banks, it may be no surprise that it was built in 1983 to mimic an antique cash register. It was also originally intended for Texas. Accordingly, architect Philip Johnson's postmodern design did not take Colorado snow into account, which could grow into huge drifts, slide off the curved roof, and smother people and vehicles on the street. 
so heating coils were installed on top of the building to deter accumulation. At 52 stories high, the building is not the city's tallest, though it may seem so as it scrapes the sky from the edge of North Cap Hill. Underground, the cash register building's vault was the scene of a deadly robbery in 1991, which left four dead and remains unsolved to this day. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Dazzle Jazz in Denver. Colorado is an entrepreneurial state, an epicenter for startups. But one group says entrepreneurs who identify as Latino or BIPOC face additional hurdles. It's why the Latino Leadership Institute has created a new business accelerator. Chief Strategy Officer Harry Holland says a lot is at stake. Business ownership is one of the key pillars to building wealth and intergenerational wealth. And Latinos hold about one-tenth the wealth of those of white Americans. And when you look at business owners, business owners have about 12 times uh, the net worth of those who do not own businesses. And we also know that Latinos are significantly underrepresented uh, when it comes to business ownership. One of the entrepreneurs taking part is Luis Antesana, founder of Juntos to College in Denver. Also, Eva Padilla. She's an expert in business loans, and she serves as a mentor and is in Colorado Springs. And welcome to you both. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Hi, Eva. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, Luis, can you explain just briefly what Juntos to College does and why you wanted to start it? Yeah, absolutely. So our mission is to help DREAMers or DACA recipients learn how to renew and submit their own work permits so they can become self-advocates, self-sufficient, so they can uh, continue keep their jobs, continue working, and most importantly, earn wages, right? And And this is important because our vision is to help undocumented families access upward economic mobility. Is it difficult to do those permit renewals? People run into trouble, I guess. Oh, absolutely. So one is um, the difficult legal language that comes with the forms. Um, There's a lot of fear and anxiety that comes through looking at those forms. And then one of the biggest barriers is the financial barriers, being able to afford the legal fees as well as uh, the expenses for the attorney. I mean, this is sort of meta. Your organization happens to focus on the same objectives as this business accelerator. You're focused on generational wealth, upward mobility. Uh, Do you imagine then helping an entrepreneur like yourself renew their work permit? Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, it's it's, uh, it's, it's a dream come true. I never thought I'd be doing this, given my background, challenges, uphill. And now we're extending the knowledge, the vision to other undocumented families across, right? To let them know that, hey, you can do this too. You can learn it um, and you can become uh, self-sufficient. Yeah. Given your own challenges, what do you mean? Yeah, no. So for my, I was born in Bolivia, raised in Los Angeles. And when I was a senior in high school, I found out that I was undocumented. Um, this changed my life upside down, changed my trajectory, the way I thought about the world. Um, and it was a very, very dark time in my life. And after that, I knew that something had to change um, and that I wanted to do something so that others like me wouldn't um, or uh, the, the next generation wouldn't have to feel the way I did. Um, and so uh, it's been a long journey, but this is where I'm at. And I'm excited to, to be doing this for the community. What a thing to learn at. How old again were you when you learned? I was 17. Undoc- 17. Yeah. To have carried one sense of yourself and then be introduced to this idea that you were undocumented. What was that like? 
Oh, yeah. No, I, you know, it was my friends and I, we were talking about careers, college, the future, um, you know, uh, four-year universities, uh, private, public, and all of a sudden our civics, our college counselor came into my civics class and said, everybody can go to college. You just need a social security number for FAFSA. And that's when I realized that, oh, my goodness, I really don't have one. And my counselors did not know what to do. So that's was that dark feeling. Oh. Yeah. Well, Eva, your job in this accelerator, which is called Leap, by the way, is to give people like Luis advice uh, with their startups. I wonder what your favorite thing is to teach entrepreneurs. Definitely. It's all about the technical assistance, um, just the the understanding of what you need to know that in that first year of starting your business, um, whether it be from pre- preparation of uh, your capital, how much have you saved up, um, do you a business plan? Um, what are your cash flow projections? So I help them keep them accountable to their um, the loan amount that they're asking for. As a nonprofit lender, um, we also provide um, here in Colorado Enterprise Fund, who I'm also a part of, I'm general manager of Southern Colorado. Um, so we manage all of the business loan applications that are coming in, and we also help disperse grants. Um, so during COVID, we were one of the uh, organizations that help disperse $20 million in grants in um, El Paso County and also in Denver County. So it's it's been an amazing opportunity to be able to share this knowledge to, especially to our Latino and BIPOC entrepreneurs. I'll say that uh, you are indeed regional manager as well for Southern Colorado at the Colorado Enterprise Fund. So you have this ability to connect people to capital. And I wonder, is capital the biggest obstacle for you, Luis, as you have started this venture? Well, many will know that there's there's so many obstacles when it comes to starting up an organization, but capital is absolutely one of the major ones. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, it's uh, and especially, you know, um, this past year, as I was really getting into and in building an organization, I found out that uh, when it comes, we're a nonprofit, um, and and part of being a nonprofit is we, we we can get we get to ask for philanthropic dollars, and the facts across the United States is that you know um, uh, only five percent of all philanthropic dollars across the United States go to BIPOC founders. Uh, which is an incredible, incredible, incredibly low and sad, disappointing number. A disparity. A, a massive disparity, a gap. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, capital is absolutely a major to, uh, you know, a, a major uh, problem for obstacle for us. Uh, but with that, you know, uh, being undocumented, I've always had this chip on my shoulder and it's like, all right, well, here's the problem. Let's go ahead and tackle it full force. Let's build a, a community behind us who can help us figure out if we can solve this problem. And the reality is that, yeah, it's it's true. We we want to solve this disparity, um, obviously not just for us, but uh, systemically. So it's not so difficult for folks like us to have access to capital. Yeah, Eva, why don't you speak a bit to why such an accelerator is necessary? One that is focused on, uh, for instance, Latino businesses. I can tell you that only three percent of Latinos are actually accepted in the traditional business accelerators. So the fact that this is a the first Latino-owned business accelerator in Colorado is a huge impact um, to our Hispanic and BIPOC. And, and so I feel like at, to be a part of a Latino Business Accelerator and also provide the resources such as my organization um, with Colorado Enterprise Fund, which our mission is to solely um, give access to capital to underserved communities. Um, this is a huge, huge impact. It's a huge um, trailblazing opportunity to be a part of. So um, I think right now is it's, it's the best time to get we have all the resources. Um, 80% of the Hispanics in Colorado are English speakers. The remaining are Spanish speakers. So we, I want to be able to 
provide resources both Spanish and English to these um, entrepreneur, entrepreneurs that need it the most. I want to apologize for the quality of your line in Colorado Springs. If you're just joining us, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about a new business accelerator that is focused on Latino and BIPOC-owned businesses. One of those businesses that is being mentored as part of the new accelerator uh, is called Juntos to College in Denver, which helps dreamers with their work permits, uh, so critical to their income and perhaps to even generational wealth. And uh, its head, Luis Antesana, joins us, along with one of the mentors in the program, Eva Padilla, who's an expert in business loans and serves uh, indeed as a mentor for the program. Well, what were some of the other obstacles you faced? Because you said capital was just one of them, Luis. Give me an example of another that... And I understand Eva is actually your mentor, and this is like the first time you're talking, correct? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Super excited. Hi, Eva. I'm glad we could make the connection, but you know. <laughs> you made the connection happen. <laughs> uh, it was going to happen regardless. Was, um, yes, that's right. I don't want to take credit. Sure. But, yeah. but, you know, I don't know, turn this into a little bit of a business counseling session. Like, what is a burning question that you have for a mentor? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think. Um, and then this will be this will uh, illuminate a little bit onto the the the, the issues, kind of a, of how difficult the obstacles that that come across here. And it's really, um, you know, uh, being undocumented is one layer. Uh, being a Latino uh, Hispanic is another layer. And then coming from a low income background, when nobody in my immediate family is really um, has tremendous knowledge about navigating the entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurship system here in the United States. Uh-huh. Like, there's a lot of layers to this, right? So uh, one of my questions to Eva is like, hey. Um, you know, Eva um, uh, or my any of my mentors, how do I navigate this as a person of color, as a Latino, as someone who comes from a low-income background, someone who's um, undocumented? Very difficult, nuanced question, but it's often like, right, like how do I navigate this step? How do I act, navigate uh, venture capitalists? How do I navigate foundations uh, in, in, in terms of how I, how I should appro- approach them given my identities, hmm. right? Open-ended question. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you don't have to give the entire answer here, but Eva, what would you say top line? The the advantage with Colorado is that there are so many business resources um, and the same um, access for BIPOC and Hispanic entrepreneurs, such as our SBDC, Small Business Development Centers, that can help give you the templates of how to run a specific type of industry. So um, that is one of our major referral partners. And also just tapping into organizations like a CDFI, uh, just like what we are here in Colorado Enterprise Fund. And what that means is we're here for for the community development financial institution. We are here for the underserved communities. Um, In our our organization, we have an I-10 loan. So that means it's a loan specifically for those that do not have a social security number, but you have the individual tax identification number. So the programs are here. The resources are available. It's just tapping into the right network, which you're already doing with the LEAP Advisory um, Board being part of your mentorship, and just tapping into the amazing resources that Colorado has to offer. And I think um, with once we, we, we begin our conversation, you'll start to see 
all of the available resources and how much that's going to really help you in your growth. Yeah, the small business development centers, which uh, you know are regionally throughout Colorado, uh, we've showcased them before in rural parts of Colorado. They've been critical to a lot of entrepreneurs. Okay, I want to play another clip from Harry Hollins, who helped create this business accelerator at the Latino Leadership Institute. He explains why business ownership matters to the Latino community if the U.S. wants to continue to be a leading economy in the world. Latinos now will be, you know, they're already a significant part of not only population, but the workforce. And small business is, you know, 45% of the economic activity of GDP is small business. So you need continued growth of small business, which has been the backbone of the United States for, you know, decades, if not centuries. So that contribution needs to be increased as the you know, percentage of the population increases. What do you make of that when you hear that, Luis? Yeah. You're part of the engine. Oh no! Yeah, and and we're building the engine. We need an engine. Um, it's it, it speaks to to all of the DACA recipients in Colorado. Estimated a little over fourteen thousand DACA recipients live here in Colorado, um, which contributes um, an average of eight hundred million dollars to the Colorado GDP. So I think that goes hand in hand what Harry's talking about. We're creating this engine, engine for for us. And if we succeed, if we can help our DACA uh, recipients, our dreamers succeed, then the entire neighborhood succeeds, and then the uh, community, and then the city, and then the state. Right, so it's, mm. it's really this upward mobility for everyone in Colorado, and that's what we want. It, as you describe it, it's like a ripple effect, really. Yeah. Eva, do you want to uh, just say a few words about that? Yeah, I think this is a very unique um, accelerator, just because of the, the technical, the social, the financial tools that it's going to be supported for one year for all of the um, the cohort that are, are a part of the program. So this is going to be a, a huge impact to the Latino community. And I can't wait to see the results, especially from Luis's uh, business within a year from now. Well, just from a business perspective, Luis, you provide services, as we've said, to DACA recipients. But DACA could go away this year with a pending court case. I mean, talk about one heck of an uncertainty. In terms of your business, how are you preparing for that? Yeah, talk about uh, obstacles, right? Um, no, uh-huh. so we've been in this position before. Last year, um, our, our, we were positioned to help first-time DACA applicants. DACA was open again uh, for folks who wanted to apply for the first time. We were in that. We were helping close to 23 families. And then all of a sudden, the announcement was dropped. <clears throat> that DACA was closed for the first time, and it crushed our families. It crushed us, obviously, in terms of our operations. It came to a complete stop. So I say that because we've been there before. Uh, but as, as you can imagine, um, we are very resilient. We're very flexible. We always have our running shoes, our basketball shoes on. We know when to pivot. Um, and last year we did. And this year we've grown tremendously, both financially and support. And kind of our team here is growing. So we're, again, uh, we of course, we have our, our contingency plans, A, B, and C in case. Worst case scenario, DACA mm-hmm. those close again. We're positioned very well to pivot to ensure that we can fulfill our vision of helping undocumented families. So we're right there um, uh, in terms of capital, in terms of our team, in terms of different things. We've been piloting a lot of different um, programs on the back end that aren't just DACA. Uh, They're not open to the public because we're testing what's working, what's great, what's a good uh, best practice, what's not. Um, So we're ready. But how fascinating in a way to have several business models depending on the outcome in the courts or legislatively. Thanks to both of you for being with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Luis. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Eva. Thank you so much. All right, Eva Padilla, 
regional manager for Southern Colorado at the Colorado Enterprise Fund. She's also a mentor in this new LEAP Accelerator from the Latino Leadership Institute. And Luis Antesana is one of the entrepreneurs taking part. His organization is called Juntos to College. We'll have links to all these groups, all these recommendations and tips at CPR.org a bit later. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Parts of western Colorado have been in a drought for the last 20 years. Climate change has also caused warmer temperatures, heat waves, and reduced snowpack. All contribute to conditions ripe for severe wildfires. Fire seasons are now 78 days longer than they were in the 70s. I'm Sam Brash from the CPR News Climate Team. Here on CPR News, listen to the latest reports on climate change and sign up for CPR's weekly climate newsletter at CPR.org. When you see a big rig, chances are you won't see a driver who's black, brown, or female. But Colorado's now home to what might be the country's only black-owned truck driving academy. With more on their mission, here's Elaine Tassie, CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter. Shanika Carter is answering phones and emails in the office of Carter Truck Driving Academy in Aurora. Behind her is a small classroom where students learn the basics of trucking. The mother of three had her own accounting firm in Atlanta, but after having a baby and dealing with postpartum depression several years ago, she needed a change. Rented a U-Haul, got a credit card, and told Matthew, get me out of here. I didn't care where we went. She and her husband, Matthew, and their three children U-hauled it to Colorado, where he has a cousin. Matthew had worked as a truck driver before. They thought they'd become truckers. So So your intention initially wasn't so much to open a truck driving school, but to do... A trucking company, become a motor carrier, Mm -hmm. meaning that we transport goods from a shipper to a receiver. As they were trying to find connections, a friend from a nonprofit that helped people find jobs contacted her. She knew some young people who wanted training in trucking, and she knew Matthew had trucking experience. So she asked if they might want to try teaching them. And I'm like, hmm. I said, Matt, do you want to start like a school so we can just train a couple of her students over at the nonprofit? He was like, yeah, why not? I'm sick of the post office. Let's do it. So she wrote a curriculum enrolled students, rented office space, and found a practice yard in Globeville. Carter Truck Driving Academy has been open for over a year now and has graduated close to 100 students. Hands-on action takes place in the yard. Class starts at 8 a.m. I usually get here about 7 a.m. Just, you know, to warm up the trucks, set up my cones. This is the new class right here. So when it's your first day, we teach them straight line back. So first week's right here. The second week, students are right here doing alley dock. And then I got uh, students right here pre-tripping the engine. That's Matthew Carter, Shanika's husband. He teaches the four-week program. It ends with students taking a test at one of the state's 70 private testing sites for $275. Tuition is more than $5,000. Matthew's goal is to help students get jobs, and most do. We just help them out because a lot of people don't really know about truckers, so they don't know where to start, so right. we just give them the alley-oop. 
Only 2% of Colorado's commercial driver license holders reported their race as black. Only 7% said they are Hispanic. Both are below the population figures for the state. And women hold just 8% of the licenses. Carter Truck Driving Academy's students look different, with students from all over the world. There's Adam. I born in Iran and grew up in Turkey. I live in America. And Orgel. I'm from Mongolia. So it's my first day. You having fun? Yeah, it's fun. And Chris, who's from Colorado. We'd pull past that and then reverse into it at a 90 degree angle. This is new trucking. This is, we do things that are unheard of in our industry with compassion for people, compassion for humanity, uh, welcoming all ethnicities, all genders, um, everyone. To, to this industry. It is a sure way to get out of poverty, a for sure way. A trucker can start out earning $50,000 a year. When Adam took the test at a privately run testing center located elsewhere, he failed the first time. He has brown skin and speaks with an accent. Chris, who was white, passed. Shanika says this discrepancy is common. That's even though state records show just 5% of test takers generally fail. The problem is that the folks doing the testing don't look like me, mm-hmm. okay? And so when my students that are immigrant, that are non-English uh, speaking first language, uh, that are black, show up and they look different, they are not passing the test. And so that's another $275 fee on top of any additional fees they may charge to use their truck. Colorado State Representative Leslie Herod has been following Shanika on social media, and they have already had one phone call. I mean, I think they found a problem and a niche and a solution to that problem. But in that work, they have found that there is so many other layers of inequities that exist within our licensing process in the state of Colorado and, quite frankly, throughout the nation. It's a challenge instructor Berlin Moore, who is Latina, knows well. The first time she took the test, the tester failed her. And she was like, drive back to the yard, you failed. And I'm like, what did I do? And she said, well, you hit the curb. If you hit the curb, the trailer's gonna pop, you're gonna hear a noise, it's gonna drop down. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, I didn't hit the curb. And she said, well, if you don't have a camera on your trailer, she's like, it's your word versus my word. If having a commercial driver's license is one ticket out of poverty and testers hold the key, should the state track pass and fail rates by race or ethnicity? They don't now because they aren't required to. That makes it impossible to know whether complaints like Berlin's are backed up by statistics. This is DMV spokesperson Derek Kuhn. We are required to uh, give give applicants the opportunity to self-identify But most applicants, um, about 65%, uh, they really don't uh, fill out that ethnicity data. Would it make sense for the state to require that data? Hard to say. I can't really speak uh, for the legislature. All I can say is that uh, we just, you know, we follow Colorado revised statute in this regard. The lack of certainty about potential bias is a reason to consider doing things differently, according to Herod. Um, And so for me, after really um, beginning the dialogue around what is going on in the trucking industry because of the work that Shanika is doing, and it really leads uh, me to question 
whether or not we are collecting the right data, whether or not we are standing behind our values to ensure that our licenses in Colorado um, reflect the diversity of our state. If the legislature decides to track pass and fail rates based on race, it could take a while. In the meantime, instructor Berlin Moore makes all her trucking students feel at home. It's okay because I get to work with the students, you know what I'm saying, and give them a better experience than I had. Adam, the student from Turkey, took his test a second time, passed, and is ready to get on the road. I'm Elaine Tassie, CPR News. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to the team behind the wheel. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Martin Skavish. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm about to keep on